0: Hi, and welcome to the latest podcast from The Lancet Oncology. My name's Priya, and today we're discussing two reviews on developing guidelines for designing clinical trials for patients with brain metastases. We're joined by the author of one of the reviews, Dr. Ross Kammidge. Welcome.
1: Um, thank you for having me.
0: So first, Dr. Kammidge, could you please provide a little background to the reviews? Why is it particularly pertinent now to develop guidelines for clinical trial design for patients with brain metastases?
1: So um, so I'm a thoracic oncologist, and certainly in my field, it's become clear that the brain has emerged as a real battleground for differentiating between long-term control of disease in some key molecular subtypes of cancer. And while um, particularly non-small cell lung cancer and some of the molecularly-driven subtypes like EGFR or ALK may have led the charge, exactly the same movement is going on in many other tumor types, melanoma, breast cancer, um, et cetera. And so what had become clear is that the way we used to do business in terms of clinical trial design um, needed an update. So what I mean by that is we had two problems. Either we were just inherent pessimists and we just wanted to exclude everybody with any kind of brain metastasis from clinical trials, which was a a real problem if your patient was doing well and had, you know, wonderfully well-controlled disease um, in the brain because you'd given radiotherapy. But it was also a problem because what if you developed a new drug that actually could penetrate into the brain and have activity there? If you just excluded these people, you'd never generate that information. And so maybe as long ago as sort of 2010, 2011, a group called RANO, which stands for Response Assessment in Neuro-Oncology, who had written guidelines on... Primary brain tumours, glioblastoma, things like that. Said, okay, well, let's take our expertise and now move in the direction of metastatic disease, cancers from the rest of the body which have spread to the brain, and try and improve matters. And they kind of recruited me as one of, as, a, as a sort of thoracic oncology expert to that that group. What happened was, you know, we put out a few sort of state of the problem papers but this is um, one of the first real papers to, to be a sort of how to do it guide and the goal of this guideline is to take investigators to take the pharmaceutical industry to take cooperative groups and say look we think this is a problem this is how to make it better and we're clearly sort of pushing on an open door, Um, there was a parallel group which actually contained some of the same people who are in the Reno group called the Friends of Cancer Research and they also um, were looking at a range of different um, barriers to accrual into clinical trials, including brain metastases. And they've just put out a guideline and, and not surprisingly, given that we've had some overlapping authorship between the two, we tried to make sure that these were complementary, and that they said a similar kind of thing.
0: And what were the limitations of previous studies that assessed CNS efficacy for systemic drugs?
1: Well, the, the limitations are really that we just didn't do it. We sort of did it retrospectively. And um, in this review, one of the things that we did was in order to figure out where you want to go, you have to figure out where you've been. So there's a, there's a section in this review where we were essentially sort of, you know, wash our dirty, dirty laundry and go through many of the examples of retrospective analyses trying to show whether a drug has got it effectiveness in the brain um, and, and and sort of pull them apart. And so let me give you some examples. So, um, you know, showing one MRI of a lesion in the brain shrinking and then saying, this drug has CNS activity. That's clearly nonsense because you don't have a denominator, you don't have duration of benefit, yet we've all done it. Um, presenting data on efficacy dominated by systemic endpoints, so overall survival, progression-free survival response rate, and just saying this is what it is in those with and without brain metastasis at baseline. And that's completely meaningless because most of the readout you're getting is dominated by lesions that you're measuring in the liver and the lungs and everywhere else. And so the fact that they happen to have brain metastasis at baseline doesn't tell you anything. And perhaps, you know, one of the, the biggest problems was how RESIST, which is the way we measure lesions within clinical trials, response assessment criteria in solid tumors is what it stands for, tended to have looser criteria for what were called non-target lesions. So target lesions, you had to shrink by a certain amount, grow by a certain amount. If the thing you were looking at was labeled a non-target lesion, it was much more qualitative. You could say if it completely disappeared, you could say... um, you know, subjectively, if there was overt progression, but there was nothing definitive that said how you defined overt progression, sort of everything else between those two tended to get called stable disease. And so brain metastases tended to always get lumped together into the non-target category, tended to be smaller. People tended to have a different scan. It was reported at a different time. It's just the easy thing to do. And so if they're all called non-target disease, they they tend to show this kind of stable um, Uh, readout, and that's probably just a vague of how Resist works. And so all of this was kind of like, we got the feeling that there was something there, that some of these drugs were working in the brain, but we weren't capturing it robustly. So what we've tried to do through these Reno guidelines is to say, look, if you think your drug is going to have activity in the brain, you have to design a study properly to actually capture that. And you know, perhaps that would be a good lead into defining what the recommendations for the clinical trial design is within, within this new guideline.
0: And could you outline some of the key recommendations that you propose for clinical trial design for patients with CNS metastases for both systemic and local therapies?
1: So um, this is to do with systemic drugs or systemic therapies. I guess you would include immunotherapy and other things in that and it's really, it's not just about designing a trial always to look at what's going on in the brain, it's, it's about addressing brain metastases in the broader sense. Both when to exclude them, when to include them, how to best assess efficacy endpoints in those settings. And so what we really say is you can define three broad categories. Either you have some baseline data that says you think this drug is not going to work into the brain. And that may be because maybe you've treated some patients and they've all progressed in the brain. It may be because all your animal models suggest the brain is an Achilles heel. But there, it's about appropriately protecting the patient and the development of a drug and not giving them undue risk. But also, it's about not unduly excluding patients who might not have risk in their brain if it's been appropriately treated. So what we really push for there in what's called scenario A is effective treatment how often you have to assess whether it's working with a goal of trying to protect somebody but not unduly restrict entry into the study. Okay, scenario B is the exact opposite. Scenario B is you have preliminary evidence that your drug actually might have activity in the brain. Maybe you've seen responses in untreated metastases in the brain. Maybe your preclinical models really suggest it's going to work in the brain. And there, it's about how do you allow in patients. How do you capture efficacy? So it's things like make sure that the disease in the brain is called a target lesion. Make sure you track it appropriately. Make sure you do the same frequency of scans in the brain as in the body. And I think that's the way that we're really pushing for a robust change in the capture of information of CNS activity. And then perhaps the last Uh, example, which is called Scenario C, is going to be the most common one. And as we go forward, it's going to become even more common, which is you have a brand new drug, you want to start development, and you know nothing about whether this drug is going to work in the brain or not in cancer patients. And what we've suggested, and we've mirrored that recommendation in the Friends of of Cancer research article, is early in drug development, when you're figuring out the dose, you get to what's called the recommended phase 2 dose. It's been very common to add in a few extra cohorts either an efficacy cohort, a group of people with the same molecular abnormality that you want to show an early signal of efficacy, a food effect cohort, where you're trying to figure out if your drug, if it's a tablet, should be taken with or without food, even drug-drug interaction cohorts to try and figure out what the label should show. You know, is it likely to interact with these kind of enzyme inhibitors or these kind of enzyme inducers? And what we've suggested is there's another cohort that you should add in at that point, a CNS metastases sub-study at that point, with people who all have the same molecular abnormality, who have disease in the brain, and you actually capture the information on whether your drug works in the brain or not to inform scenario A or B in the future. That, I think, is if we can start to do that routinely, that we will go very quickly over the next few years to everybody will know whether their drug is going to be a CNS-type drug or not, and appropriately design their clinical trials for a scenario A or B going forward. And I think that's the exciting thing.
0: And looking to the future, what steps should investigators and working groups such as Reno now take to help change clinical trial design for patients with brain metastases? And how do you feel this will best be achieved?
1: So what we hope people do is they take this very practical, this very pragmatic guideline that we've now written, and people will take it on board. And particularly for, you know, people in early phase drug development will start to generate information on their drugs, potential activity or liability in the brain, and then the whole of that development pathway for that drug in diseases which have a propensity to spread to the brain um, will be much more appropriately designed. And I think what we really hope is that this guideline acts as the seed and people will be able in years to come can say, oh, that's that's when the field changed. And now we routinely generate this information. I think it's good news for patients. I mean, it's tremendously sad when you have a patient who's doing great, who is inappropriately excluded from a study. It's also good news for patients because I think we all live in our brain to some extent and being worried about whether a treatment will work in the brain or not um, has has been a problem in the past. And I think as we now have drugs particularly in in the lung cancer field which are controlling disease in the brain to some extent, um, the more information we can uh, generate on
0: this and and give people more options the better. Thank you Dr. Comidge and thank you listeners. See you again next time.